Welcome to a Promise in Progress podcast. I'm Stacia Sharp. This is where we meet to talk about the tough situations that have made us, the commitments and vows we've made to ourselves and to our loved ones along the way, and where we share the stories about when we fell apart and picked ourselves back up again. Share with us today, and as always, follow a Promise in Progress podcast and subscribe to madebyapromise.com for more. On today's show, wife, mom, foster parent turned adoptive mom, who faced extreme challenges and was close to the end and how she came through it. Welcome, Rhonda. Where does your story start? Oh my gosh, where does my story start? Okay, so my story probably starts um, just when we started doing foster care. I had been a stay-at-home mom. My kids were all in middle school at the time, and it just felt like I should be doing something else. And so we decided that we wanted to do foster care. We had a very big house, and it just felt like something that we should do in order to help other people. How many children did you already have? I had four children of my own. By the time the the younger one was in middle school, I had three at home. Uh, So what we did is we started fostering and we did mainly infants and teen moms and their infants, but we did have some family units as well in the beginning. So one of the families that we had, we had a a brother and a sister. They would have been about uh, six and a year and a half. The biological mom had another baby. Was this at the very beginning of your fostering journey or how long had you been fostering at this time? We had been fostering probably for about five years at that time. Mom had uh, another baby and the baby was removed at birth. The system was flagged so they knew she was pregnant again. And so they called us because we had the siblings to see if we'd be able to take on the baby as well in order to keep the family together. So we said, yeah, that we could do that. So when baby was born, we went to the hospital right away when she was born. So I spent the first day there and then they sent her home. Baby hair follicle test tested positive for heroin and cocaine, as well as there was indication of fetal alcohol syndrome. For people that don't know, when a baby is born with those things in their system, what kind of reaction or care is needed for a child in that situation? So what they need is, depending on the substance that they're withdrawing from, with the cocaine, and because cocaine was the primary, she had to be kept in a dark room. So there was not a lot of people around, not a lot of stimulation. Everything had to be very muted lighting. She basically went through withdrawal. And so she would just scream and scream and scream for hours on end. And she wouldn't eat. She she had a problem with sucking. It was just really chaotic, actually. <laughs> she had explosive, explosive diarrhea. Her system was, would just almost explode. She had a really bad GERD, the stomach upset. She didn't tolerate the formula, so we had to have special formulas. That's not just a rough start for a baby, but that's a very dangerous start for a baby. Oh, it is. Absolutely. We were told that if she survived, she had a 50% chance of surviving the first year. And so that was our goal, was to get her to that first year. Like We felt like we couldn't relax until that first year was there. She was like, she was driven like with a motor, like her body was constantly moving. And I can remember we visited, I had a grandchild that was born shortly after her. And we went to visit this baby 
And his baby just laid in your arms, just laid in your arms and snuggled up against your chest. And like my husband said, oh my God, I forgot what that was like, you know, because she was just constantly moving. If she was in the tub, she was rolling. Like we did figure out that she calmed with swaddling where we, we had this one blanket that we swaddled her in. And while we were able to swaddle, we swaddled about six months, couldn't swaddle anymore. It was not healthy for a baby. We just had to come up with different things. But by that time, she was better. She wasn't over everything, but at least she was sleeping sometimes. She could be out and about like probably about six weeks. We kept her just kind of to ourselves. And my husband and I took turns walking the floor with her. So he'd do four hours and then I'd do four hours and then he'd do four hours and I'd do four hours because she catnapped if she slept at all. So she spent a lot of time, lots of trips to the hospital because it was definitely something that was very new to the area where I was. Like it wasn't, there wasn't a lot of knowledge about it. There's a lot more knowledge about FAS than there was with neonatal abstinence. Neonatal abstinence syndrome is an infant that has, is born with substances. FAS is fetal alcohol syndrome. She has a diagnosis of fetal alcohol syndrome. She doesn't have the indicators Hers is different. They've gone with the American diagnosis so that it's not actually fetal alcohol, but it's the same effects to her brain. When did they first diagnose her? Did they diagnose her from birth? Yeah. Well, she was diagnosed with neonatal abstinence at birth. But then from there, like there was just so many underlying things. As she grew, different diagnoses came into play. My understanding is it takes a long time to get those different diagnoses, years sometimes, and you were along with her on this journey? Yes. Before, when you had your own four kids and were momming it at home, did you ever think this would become your journey at that point? No, not at all. We, we had decided, we had, I was 26 when I had my fourth child. We were done and we thought we were going to spend our golden years young when we could retire and we could start traveling and doing for ourselves. And this little one came along and that just changed everything. (laughs) So we're still waiting for the golden years. (laughs) So she did, she had lots of medical issues. We were in, we were in the hospital a lot. She had different kinds of seizures that they were just unknown why they happened. And so that was always a concern, but she was on medication for seizures for about six years, seizure free. And then she went off that. So, you know, that kind of was never an issue again for a while. She had breathing issues. She was born and her lungs were not well-developed. We had, you know, a ventilant intent and stuff that we had to do all the time. I would say probably the first six months were very, very difficult, but then she started to do more that typical babies do. She was definitely delayed. Everything she did was delayed. She talked really, really young. Everything else was a little slower. We had her and her siblings till she was 16 months old, and then she went into an adoption placement. All three kids were adopted together. When you had her and her siblings, and were your own children still at home at this time as well? I had a 13-year-old and a 14-year-old at home with me as well. So how many children all together did you have at home? We had two other foster kids at the same time as we had the other three. So for the first probably year, we had a teen mom and her infant. And then we had this family of three, plus my two. That is a lot. It is a lot. And 
I make sure that people know that this was not me doing this. It was Barry and I doing this. Like Barry did just as much as I did, you know, like he was a school bus driver. So he drove for a bit in the morning. He was home for a few hours in the afternoon. And I don't think we could have taken on this infant if I hadn't had him because there wasn't funding for help. We were kind of in it on our own. About three weeks after she was born, I was able to get the ministry to fund a helper for me in the morning. So this helper would come at five o'clock in the morning and she would just start while I got everybody else ready and off to their respective schools and daycares and whatever they were doing. So that helped, you know, for a period of time. So I had her for about two months. And so that was helpful. And I mean, children in general uh, will require 24 hour care um, for all kids, but this is hands on. Mm -hmm full needs, full attention, yeah. uh, care that you had to give. So you, you and your husband like had to probably go above and beyond yourselves and what you had as energy in your system at that time to really uh, focus on her needs too. I think, you know, my, my two teenage children were very helpful as well. They had been raised with, well, not raised with, but for the last several years, they had had other foster kids in the home. And I had done some daycare for a young girl that I had for like 13 years. And they were very good. They were very helpful, like especially with the older kids, not so much with the baby because her needs were quite specific. Whereas the little bit older children, they, you know, they would take them outside and play with them and stuff. So I really did have a lot of help from my family. During this time, what did you struggle with personally? Because I, I know it must've been extremely hard to find a moment to think for yourself, let alone do anything for yourself. You know, it, um, what did I struggle with the most? It's all I did. It's all I did. I had a really good church family. You know how they say that you need a village, you know, to raise a child? Well, this is a kid that needed a village. And so I was very, very blessed because as she got older, she got quite aggressive and she would hit on me. Like she would, she would hit, she would kick, she would bite, she would pinch. Like she just, I was the target of her aggression. And so I had three people in my, my circle, my friends that I never got to visit with them face to face, but we had a close relationship because we were always on the phone, but I would dial the phone and they would hear her screaming and they would just drop everything and come. Otherwise, I don't know, because when Barry wasn't there, I think we should have had two people there all the time. And I think it would have been easier. But what did I do? Um, I, I guess I just, I didn't do anything. I guess she was, she was my, she was my job. She was put into the adoption placement when she was 16 months old. And when she was three, the placement broke down. The children came back to me. All three had very, very intense needs. Not so much the oldest one, but the two, the two younger girls, the baby and her sibling, her sister. They were all difficult. And you put all that difficulty in one home. It's just not going to work. They returned to me. They were with me for about another six months. And then they went back to this placement because the goal was to keep the children together. And they knew that if this placement broke down, that there was no way that they were going to be able to keep them together. So we had them for about six months and then they went back for about a year and then they, re they were returned to care permanently. So at that time, they decided that they had to split the children up. So I was asked if I would take any of them. And I said that they were with me uh, temporarily in, as a foster placement, the three of them until they could find other homes. And I said, yeah, that I would, Nick, what do you want? And they said, well, we want them each to be in a separate home. And I said, I said, who would you have the hardest time placing? And they said the infant. So I said, okay, then we'll take the infant. 
we ended up with the infant and the older boy, which he would have been about seven years older than her. He was with us like right until we adopted the little girl, but the other one went into another placement. We originally applied to adopt both the kids, but the young man that we applied to adopt, he didn't want to be adopted. He had been through another adoption placement in between this. So he went to another adoption, adoptive home and it broke down and he came back to us again. So in his head, adoption doesn't work. So he lived with us until he was a teen and then he went to live in another teen home. So he did very well on his own. But in the meantime, we had this little girl and she continued to be quite aggressive. We were told by a very well-known psychologist that if she does hit me, like the biggest thing with reactive attachment disorder, which is one of the diagnoses she eventually had, you don't want to turn away from them. Like if they say nasty things to you or they do nasty things to you, you need to not pull away because that's reinforcing their idea that they're going to lose you as well. And so I let her hit me and I let her kick me and I let her bite me and she would get out of her car seat when I was driving and grab me around the head. And I think of it now and I think, ay, ay, ay. So that went on for several, several years. And she started her school years. By the time she was in grade two, she'd been kicked out of all the schools that would take her. And then she was put into an alternate program. My husband and I, we didn't even have a date night, you know, at that time. We were allotted finances for uh, respite, but respite was very hard to find. And we wanted somebody that had a relationship with her. And so it took us a long time to train somebody up to do respite for us. And then she was just such a hard kid that it never lasted. At that time, what did finalizing the adoption mean for you or mean to you? I could make my decisions for her now. I could make the decisions that I thought was best for her. I was very, very lucky when, as opposed to any of the other foster kids that I've had, there's policies to live within. As much as it annoyed me, I know that there was only so much that could be done within those policies. So it's not the social worker's fault, it's the system. So this baby ended up having to go for some neurological testing as an infant to Children's Hospital. And that was the best thing that could have ever happened. Because once we were there, we saw the neurologist and she'd said to me afterwards, she says, so, okay, is there anything else? And I said, well, I don't think her hearing's very good, you know? And so she had a full workup with her hearing and we find out she's deaf in one ear and only partial hearing in the other ear. And then they, they did some metabolic testing. And like, like once you're in the door there, you get the stuff done that needs to be done. And so then we had those connections for when we adopted her, we could just continue on. We had the options of getting her counseling. We were able to make the choice ourselves to get her counseling for her needs, you know, rather than just medication, medication all the time. When you got her counseling, was adoption finalized at that time? Yes. Yeah. Took us a long time. When you got her counseling, was that counseling just for her or did it help for the entire family? Psychologist that we saw was, was for her, but my husband and I had two or three times we went and we sat with her ourselves because, you know, you do, you get to the point where you're just feeling quite um, discouraged. And the thing was with this little girl is there was just seemed like every time we turned around, there was something new. We could never determine what it was that set her off. And we wasted so much time thinking, okay, what did we do? Like, you know, you know, I did this, I said this, and you know, finally I said to my husband, I said, you know, we got to quit this because it doesn't matter what we did. Because what we did, we could do next time and it isn't going to set her off. 
it's her brain. Like her brain was just wired spastically. There's no determining what's going to happen. And we wasted so much energy just trying to figure out what we were doing wrong. So at the time that you both received counseling, was there then good communication between uh, your husband and you and your daughter? Or was it, uh, was there a breakdown and we moved in 2016 and we've been counseling together since then. It's difficult counseling with her because, like I said to Barry, I feel like I'm the only one that's doing anything. She perseverates really, really badly on things. She's now has a diagnosis of OCD. We learned to do the things that are the path of least resistance. We learned that, okay, we know the other day she was packing up some stuff at her aunt's house and she needed Rubbermaid buckets. And my husband had pulled out some buckets, but he didn't have any lids. And I said to him, I said, you should grab some lids. Oh, she's fine. I said, Barry, she's going to need lids. You know, she's going to need lids. Let's just get in there. You know, let's beat her to it. So that's a really good example of being a parent and constantly thinking ahead of what might upset your child or what they might need, trying to get into their heads. But at the same time, that causes so much panic and anxiety as a parent that you don't realize you're hanging on to because you're so tuned in and trying to constantly meet somebody else's needs that you kind of forget about your own. Yeah. Well, and it was very, very hard for my husband. Like he's just, he's kind of old school. Finally, I said to him, you don't use the word no. I said, say yes and think fast. And he says, well, what do you mean? I said, if she says, I want to jump off the roof and you say, sure, when you grow wings, you can jump off the roof, you know, like say yes and think fast, you know, like don't say no, because no set her off like crazy. Just the word no. So you learn to use the language that is going to be best suited for her, but you're right. We didn't take care of ourselves at all. My husband had a really good network of friends. He had a friend that had a farm and he would just go there during the day and hang out at the farm. And it was good for him because this was a man that he was able to talk to and then who got him. People didn't get us. We were at that time, 55 years old, taking on this child that was definitely going to need parenting for many, many years. And most of our friends just didn't understand. Friends and family, actually. My family got it after a few years. Like they they understood after a while, but I think that they wanted better for us. You know, they wanted more for us, but this is what we wanted. Like we had this child from the time she was like six hours old. She's like our biological child. You're going to do what you have to do for your child. But it wasn't until probably 2017, things got really bad. She has gotten bigger and her hits have gotten harder. I said to my husband, this has got to stop. We've taught her that it's okay to hit me and she doesn't do it anywhere else. What age was that for her? So she'd have been 11, 11 and 12. Lots of other changes going on at that age as well. Hormones and growth. Oh yes. Oh my gosh. I thought my two daughters, my two older daughters were horrible during puberty, but oh my lanta. Like it was getting so that she was hitting me all the time. And so my two daughters lived in town and they both worked shift work. So when they were working, I came and stayed at the house for four days. And then when they were off, my daughter came and then I went home. And so we didn't live together for about four months. And the psychiatrist said the only time that we're to be together is in public. It helped her stop hitting, but her words were, her words were horrible. Like just, 
Like I said to my husband, I said, I would never let a man treat me this way. It was like being in an abusive relationship. And for many years, it didn't matter what I did. It was the wrong thing. But again, that's a really crucial age to learn at that point what is going to keep on continuing as they get older, what behavior is acceptable and how to treat people that are close to them and that they love and care about. Yeah. The one thing that was really good when we moved is that she got into a really good little country school and oh my gosh, she blossomed and she has not missed a day of school from the minute that we got here. So that has been really good for her. She never acts out at school. Like she never acts out at school. And so finally we were in the psychologist's office and he said, why do you treat your mom like that? When she says that you can't have something, you can't do something. But if the teacher tells you, no, she, you know, you don't do that. And she says, I can't do that at school. And he says, well, why not? Because I'll get in trouble. And he says, well, what makes you think you won't get in trouble with your mom? And she said, my mom and dad have to love me. That's why I do it to them. They have to love me. Even if it was something that she perceived as being have to love, but she knew that she was loved. Yeah. Like, you know how they say, you're the safest person for them. That's the one that they're going to lash out at. It's the same with typical kids. My daughters were very close to their dad, very close to their dad. And I was the bad guy, you know? And I can remember when, when this little one was going through, started going through puberty, uh, my husband was just like, he said, I just don't get it. And my adult daughters said, dad, it's no different than I was, except it's 150 times worse. And my brain worked. You can't figure out how her brain works. I said, how is it different? He says, he, she said, I thought you were God and mom was a real bag. She says, you know? so, so it is typical. It's just harder because the way they handle things is harder. So I want to just reflect for a moment. And maybe you can just talk for a minute about what helped you through those tough times that helped you or that you would recommend to others that might help somebody else who would be listening. I did not look after myself, so I'm not a good example. However, I did have my faith. There's no way I would have done this without my faith. I did have um, a circle of friends that were very supportive. And uh, my one girlfriend is still my go-to when things are really bad. She's the person I can phone up and say, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. And she knows that I don't really mean it. A community around you is crucial. It's crucial. Like you just, you can't, you can't do this by yourself. And self-care, like I would take whatever respite was given to me if I was doing this again. Like I was just so concerned about making sure it was a perfect fit for our child and that the person got to know her and the respite wasn't for her. The respite was for us. And I was treating like it was for her. I think that regular time away from that, your child is, is crucial. And there's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with it. Like, you know, people have, have used the analogy of when you're on a plane and the oxygen masks drop, what do they say? Do they say, put the mask on your child first or do you put the mask on you first? Do you put it on you first? And so if you're not looking after yourself, you're no darn good to her. I've learned that, I think, because I was very, very close to the end. We got to the point where even her team who had been on us constantly, you know, like, you can do this, you can do this, and this is what she needs. It got to the point where they said, like, you know what, you're going to have to put her in a group home. It's around that time that I started to realize that I had to do something different or she wasn't going to be in our home. 
My two adult daughters have always done respite for me when I've been stuck. And it got to the point where she went to the, my one daughter's house every, you know, every couple of weeks for the weekend. But then my daughter went to school. And so then we're stuck without anything. And my sister actually stepped up and said, why doesn't she live with me a week at a time? So the arrangement was made that one week on, one week off, she was at my sister's and it's been good. I just want to chime in for a second about what respite really is. Some people might have the idea that respite is therapy as opposed to therapeutic in the sense that it just, it's to give you a break. Somebody qualified um, that has been through either a background check or, or something, probably don't know from your, you know, a, a stranger that you meet in the mall, but they've come in and they're coming just to give you a break for a period of time. And it doesn't usually mean that you're, they're gone for a week with that person. Usually that's somebody that you're more familiar with. But these things like overnight care or weekend care where they can. Usually weekend care is what we did. We had done respite after the children first went to their adoption. We took about eight months where we, we didn't foster. We went away. We came back to Saskatchewan for about three weeks, just the two of us. And then we went home. We were just like, honestly, I, I bet you I slept for a month straight. And then we just started doing respite. So every, every second weekend we had kids and it was so much fun because you just did fun stuff, right? <laughs> That's kind of what I wanted for her. I just, I put her ahead of everything else. I put her ahead of everything with me. She was the priority. I think that I could have, I could give her the same quality of care and still look after myself. And I didn't until I had to, I was just done. And I'd, I'd had a brain injury actually in 2019. And that, that was the, that was kind of the turning point that I just, I had to look after myself because I didn't have any choice. So would you say that was kind of your light bulb moment where you said, okay, you know, this is where I'm having some personal growth now, and this is where things need to change. And and where has that brought you to now? Where are you at so now? So now I know that because she needs a lot of my time and because we're doing this online schooling, which is just such a nightmare, when she's around and she's awake, I have to focus on her. So I get up at five o'clock in the morning and I have three hours to myself and I spend about 45 minutes in my Bible. I do some mindset stuff. Like I, I do some personal development stuff. I do a little bit of exercise and then I just sit and have coffee and sometimes I'll do a little bit of my puzzle or I just I schedule in the time for myself I write down the three the three things that I have to do today today was my podcast today was the meeting and then I had to make sure that I had a couple of hours for my daughter right after I got home from work and she's getting so that she does she likes to be in her room she doesn't like to spend a lot of time with me but when she does, I want to be able to do it. She's starting to learn that, okay, mom says she has time on Wednesday night and she has time on Thursday night and she has time on Saturday. She'll always make sure that she chooses one of those times to hang with me. You know, it's been quite a trial for her. <laughs> but she's been used to having me at her beck and call, right? It's like scheduled in that those could be her times, right? So taking that time for yourself, doing a little bit of things that you enjoy to do, putting your mind where it's supposed to be in the morning and setting kind of a schedule for your day, 
has that changed not only how you feel about yourself, but have you seen a growth and change in your personal relationship? Yeah, my husband and I, it was, it, it was hard. It felt like when she wasn't here, we were just too tired to do anything. I find that me looking after myself, my husband and I laugh together again. We have fun together. I just thought, oh my gosh, I can't remember the last time. We just had a giggle, you know, like who has time to laugh? So now it just feels like, I don't know, it just feels so much simpler. And it just, he's just, he's so much lighter. It's so great to see him joyful. There was a lot of years that... There just wasn't time, you know, and, and we didn't know what to do. We didn't know what to do. We didn't know the importance of looking after ourselves. My dream is to be able to someday work with young moms in these same situations and help them to see that you're not a bad mom because you have to take a break. You're not a bad mom because the child goes to respite. You have to do for yourself as well. And I just didn't. I don't want other moms to be as hired and as broken. I was just broken, you know? I couldn't understand what I was doing wrong because it wasn't getting better. If I had taken a day a week, a Sabbath a week, and looked after myself, nothing would have been any different, but I'd have been healthier, and I'd have been much, much more able to cope. I have to say your story really resonates with me. I feel that there's a lot of similarities as a caregiver who's been through some of those struggles and that the respite really hit me because I did the same thing. You know, I was like, "Mm, it has to be right for my child or what they're going through because they're replacing me and a respite worker is never going to replace you as a parent is never going to be exactly what you are is never going to know all their needs like you are, but they are going to give you that time for yourself. And it's no different than if they were to go to grandma's, you know, they know the rules at grandma's house, then they come home and they know the rules at home. It's no different. Things don't have to be the same, you know, so they have to go to bed a little bit earlier, or they don't get to have two snacks at at nighttime. So be it, they adjust. I guess we already talked a little bit about what you might hope for the future. I don't know if you want to talk about that a little bit more, but you did talk about working with other teen moms. Really, I would like to find a way to work with women that are struggling. I, I have to wait till things are a little bit more stable. But no, I, I, I think I, I wished I would have started earlier looking after myself is probably the biggest thing. Well, it's nice that you're able to take that time now and set those times aside. It, is, it really is. It's great that they're making such a difference. I'm sure your whole family feels that. It can really be stronger now. It's so important. I think it's important, even for, you know, a parent with typical children, right? You have to have that time. And we moved back to our hometown area. And all of our friends are our age. And when we used to come and visit, we used to just have so much fun. And now that we're living here, I don't think they get, we don't have anything in common because we have this kid. And everybody else is got the freedom to travel and whatnot. I never even took the time to make friends until COVID hit. And <laughs> that's a wrong time to decide to get yourself out there. <laughs> You're living a daily life of extraordinary circumstances. And, yeah. you know, it's no wonder that as a caregiver, you hit a wall. Yeah. You, you just don't know how to take care of yourself. You don't know how to make time. It seems silly spend time to read for a few minutes or do a puzzle because what good is that really going to do for you long term because you're constantly planning ahead and thinking ahead 
worrying about everybody else to take just a few minutes really, really can shift your mindset and really can do you a lot of good uh, long-term. And, and again, it have such a great positive influence on your relationships. Um, once mm-hmm. they see that and they think, Hey, this person actually has time to hear me now, you know, we can really develop that friendship or that relationship. And, and it's so hard too, because from the outside looking in, nobody knows how to help, you know, because there's, it is a situation. I did a thing on Facebook one day, I was doing some online training for my, I had a little side biz. One of the things was, you know, just to focus on the things that you're passionate about. And this is something that I'm passionate about. And I did this post about what that person with a special needs child needs from you. It's so simple. It's so simple because I can imagine people have no clue what to do, but lots of times it's just, how are you doing? phone me, bring me a coffee. You know what I mean? Like it's just such simple things because there's not a lot a person can do, but just to know that somebody's there, just a phone call or a hello. It's hard because, okay, when you've got a small child and, and you've got a child that has different needs and they don't get included in anything, include us, invite me for dinner, but know that if something happens, I can't come. It's not because I don't want to. But you stop getting invites because you're bailing all the time because all of a sudden, like there's always chaos. Just don't stop inviting. That's so true. Just just doing the check-in and just being a part of what everybody else can do on a daily basis that you may not have the opportunity yeah. to. But when you can, when there's that moment, it means so, so much. Well, I want to say thank you so much for sharing your story with us. And great talking to you and getting to know you a little bit better. I'd love to hear more about your work that you'd like to do with teen moms in the future. Uh, if you want to come back and share about that in yeah. the future sometime. Yeah, I would, I would enjoy that. There's those times to vent and then there's those times to uplift each other and to support each other and say, you know what, I know exactly how you feel, you know, and if people are looking for answers to really have those conversations. Thanks again for listening. Please take the time to reflect on our discussion today, and if you have a story to share, please contact me at madebyapromise.com. And as always, if you like what you hear, follow A Promise in Progress podcast for more.